Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Muradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell since 1935. Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Joining us today are two of our Monday regulars for a year in review, Sam Bendet of the Crack Russia team at the Center for Naval Analyses, who is also affiliated with the Center for a New American Security, and Byron Callen of the independent Washington research firm Capital Alpha Partners, who normally joins us for a look at the week ahead and whatever else is on his mind. Gentlemen, welcome back to the program, and great to have both of you together. Great to be here, Vago. Great to be here, Vago. Uh, an absolute pleasure. And before we get started, Leonardo DRS sponsors our global coverage. Fortress Information Security sponsors our weekly cyber report. Northrop Grumman supports our cyber coverage overall. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage, ultra intelligence and communications, sponsors our command and control coverage, and our coverage of both the Halifax International Security Forum and the Reagan National Defense Forum were both sponsored by Leonardo DRS and General Atomics Aeronautical Systems. Uh, guys, welcome uh, again. And Byron, I want to start with you uh, on the geostrategic level. I was going to ask you guys, you know, what were, were the big stories of the year? There were many big stories, but none bigger uh, for our patch of the universe than Russia's uh, disastrous war on Ukraine, or at least disastrous thus far. Uh, walk us through um, its impact from your standpoint on the entire geopolitical uh, ecosystem. And Sam, I'm going to come back to you in a minute uh, about some of the uh, granular uh, lessons learned. But Byron, why don't you start us off on the macro? Well, it's really, it's been a very serious wake up call, uh, really, for global security that large scale state on state industrial scale war is still possible. Um, you know, I think we, we thought of that in terms of a lot of hypotheticals, <clears throat> you know, mainly centered on a China Taiwan scenario. You know, but this has had such far-reaching implications for European defense spending, for um, for Russia's outlook. Uh, you know, from how people are thinking now about China, Taiwan, and I, I, I keep trying to finish a piece. Hopefully, I get it done this week, Vago. That that kind of starts to look at. I don't know if you want to call them observations or lessons learned. But more and more, you know, when you really start thinking about this, I don't know how much is really new out of this, as much as it's just older school books getting dusted off and we're relearning lessons that we kind of forgot about. Um, you know, an industrial base matters. Land warfare matters. Um, you have to have competent uh, log logisticians. You have to have trained military personnel. Um, the, the notions that, the tank is dead or the helicopter is dead. You know, you can you can look at that in the old index of the old school books and find similar similar chapters where those same <clears throat> events were proclaimed and yet both platforms have survived. So, um, you know, it's clearly going to be- Air superiority matters, right? I mean, the Russians don't have it and are paying a price. Right. But, you know, uh, they're the poor man's air force of <clears throat> unmanned combat air vehicles is is showing its worth, too. So, <clears throat> you know, I, I think there's so many different aspects of this. And you're right. There are different technology overlays. I think the uh, frankly, the <clears throat> the Western um, there, there are other things that are new. Um, the role of uh, strategic intelligence, the, the overhead surveillance intelligence, electronic uh, intelligence that the West has been providing Ukraine has really been 
a significant factor, and, and it may point to some real deficiencies in what the Russians have been able to maintain, uh, you know, part of their Cold War legacy. Uh, so I, I think as much as, you know, there's always this notion to proclaim, oh, it's a new era of warfare. No, I, I think they're, they're just older lessons that we're kind of dusting off. And yes, of course, technology does matter. Um, the social messaging apps that the Ukrainians have been using instead of, you know, kind of standard battlefield communications equipment, Starlink and the role that that's played. <clears throat> sure, there are always different things, but I really just think this is kind of a almost a back to the future that, that we're relearning things that we just kind of forgot about um, <clears throat> over, over the past two decades. Um, I, I would say that Sash Tuzo of our regular uh, business roundtable, that was his point uh, on yesterday's show, right? Uh, that actually a lot of our estimates about how many rounds would be fired, we're almost spot on the mark on what we calculated during the Cold War would be ammunition usage rates. Uh, yeah, but I'd, know, dial so that, I'd dial that back out, Vago, and I'd say maybe the other important lesson here is <clears throat> intelligence analysts are still fallible, um, that, you know, uh, people didn't necessarily get the the a whole range of initial expectations, right? Was Russia going to invade or not going to invade? Was Russia going to steamroll its way to Kiev and, and you know, be the dominant military power here? And, and back to, you know, kind of this, this broader context about how we assess and understand security, military affairs, geopolitics, you know, humans are still fallible. And I think that's an important that's an important lesson to also take away from this. As much as we think technology is going to give us all this, this uh, advantage, <clears throat> you know, I think about the General Mattis uh, comment, you know, the most important part is the six inches between your ears. And, and maybe that's a very another uh, critical takeaway from this that uh, <clears throat> we're, we're all still fallible and we have to we have to think through these contingencies. People are irrational. <clears throat> they can make decisions that from the outside would make no sense, but they still pull triggers and Vladimir Putin certainly certainly pulled a trigger that uh, a lot of people consider illogical. Uh, the six inch comment uh, actually is attributed to the KGB uh, initially as being a, or, or a Russian uh, military uh, saying and Sam can uh, help us uh, with that. Uh, but I would say. <laughs> But, but I would also say that um, actually the intelligence has made a dramatic difference, right? It's allowed the, intel the, the Ukrainians not to be uh, where the Russians might believe them to be. Uh, and us providing all of this information to them uh, in a real-time basis uh, has also been uh, tectonic in its implications, allowing a smaller force uh, to always get out of the way of, of the more plodding, bigger force. From your standpoint, Sam, as, as somebody who studied this conflict uh, from the very beginning, right? I mean, as Byron mentioned, it was expected to be a steamroll and pack your dress uniforms. A great piece, uh, you know, a great piece in the FT, which you noted before we got started uh, on where the Russian economy is now. And I want to get to that in a minute, but also a tremendous piece by the New York Times getting into a granular level uh, and actually just unprecedented sourcing, as far as I can tell, uh, about people even in the Putin orbit uh, talking about how delusional Putin has been in this uh, process and, and bringing us to where we are now. Um, what do you think are sort of the big lessons, the big takeaways, the big insights uh, or surprises from your standpoint in, in, insofar as this conflict and how it's played out? I think it's important to recognize that this conflict is still not over and we are heading into a very harsh winter with the Russian military digging in and preparing for long-term warfare, as articulated by the president. 
he indicated that this could be a long war and the Russian military is making adequate preparations for that. So the first year offered an interesting glimpse at how political will and political wishes often do not meet combat and battlefield realities. And in the case of Russia, it kind of offered uh, a window into how decisions were made at the highest levels that were tailored to the wishes of the top political leadership, especially the Russian president. And as has been uh, discussed and articulated in numerous um, analyses and, and excellent reporting by New York Times, Washington Post, Reuters, Financial Times, um, a lot of data was basically tailored to meet uh, excuse me, Russian president's expectation of what Ukraine is supposed to be for him and what Ukraine was supposed to be for uh, the sort of larger future of the Russian Federation and uh, Russia's leadership in the former Soviet space. And so a lot of data, a lot of key data, a lot of key analysis was never considered or possibly never made it all the way up to the leadership for serious consideration. And therefore the invasion as, as has been evidenced again by, by numerous analyses, excellent reporting up to date, the invasion really didn't have a long-term plan whatsoever. Uh, a lot of units that invaded didn't know they were going to invade. They didn't have reserves. They didn't have adequate supplies. They were given unrealistic goals for what they were supposed to accomplish. And a lot of these units did not know the quality and the type of Ukrainian defenses they were supposed to be facing. And all of that was, of course, colored by President Putin's expectation of what Ukraine was supposed to be in this war and uh, how quickly Russian military was supposed to steamroll over the Ukrainian military, again, without considering the actual intelligence and the actual facts and data that no doubt struggled to be sort of uh, heard at the highest echelons of the MOD and the Russian government. Um, you know, I'm, I'm going to stay with you, Sam, for a moment and uh, before I go uh, back to uh, Byron. Um, do, you know, the the U.S. president has said this is going to be a long conflict. Uh, there has been some suggestion and some triumphalism that the Ukrainians had prevailed. This is before the Russians got Iranian drones. You've tracked this very, very closely, uh, the Shahids and how effective they've been. Now a bigger arms deal uh, and more reliance by the Russians on uh, Iranian uh, weaponry in order to try to cripple uh, Ukraine's infrastructure. Ukraine keeps get, turning the lights back on and turning the, the heat back on. Uh, but ultimately, there are also limits, right? Ukrainian leaders have said that we're running out of some of the parts in order to keep being able to do this. Uh, and ultimately, Putin's attitude is, I don't care how many people, you know, and the New York Times story pointed that out as well, we'll keep throwing people into the meat grinder until we succeed. Uh, and we don't care. There was all a bunch of concerns about, oh, the 300,000 mobilization would um, you know, be very, very hard and taxing. It's still a country of 140 million people. Um, uh, and, and the economic uh, damage, uh, you know, the FT had a good piece on it. From, from your standpoint, what are, you know, what, what's, what's actually happening and what's actually not happening? And what are the factors that should be going into Western decision-making based on the reality of the situation with Russia, as opposed to, again, the imagined, you know, they'll be in, you know, Kiev in three days. That wasn't true any more than these sanctions will break their back and will crush them immediately. What's, what's your sense about uh, what's, what's actually happening and what the state of play is here now after 10 months of warfare? 
Well, what's important to consider, again, from lots of analyses and lots of reviews and uh, just lots of feedback and just an incredible amount of data that uh, that really kind of shape our perception of this war, data about the military, data about the uh, economic and civilian side of this conflict, is that uh, Russia, as you mentioned, is a country of 140 million. It's still the largest state in uh, in Europe with respect to resources, with respect to the population. It is still an economy that's relatively diverse, even if its budget depended on energy sales uh, disproportionately. And it's important to recognize that, and some have said about this, or actually some talked about this in the West, is that Russia still has a competent bureaucracy, a bureaucracy in the in the most objective sense, that is people who manage different government departments and are capable of not only planning for the wars, but actually steering their country and um, their sector of government through the worst of the war. And this is what we are seeing right now in Russia to some extent. They have competent bureaucrats, especially in the economic and finance ministry that recognize some of the issues and problems, try to prepare, try to mitigate them, uh, try to come up with alternatives to US imposed and Western imposed sanctions. And that is why, according to a lot of analyses, for now, Russian economy has contracted only at about 3% to 3.5% of its GDP. It did not collapse. It didn't fall. The pullout of many Western firms from some of the more impactful markets in Russia, such as large cities, Moscow, St. Petersburg, may have affected those regions specifically, but did not have a larger effect on the rest of the country, at least for now. What this actually means is that the impact of sanctions isn't going to be sudden. It isn't just going to um, cause Russia to collapse economically internally, but the impact may be long-term and that the worsening of the Russian economic situation may uh, be um, rather impactful in 2023 and possibly in 2024 as a growing share of Russian industries and parts of its uh, economies are uh, going to sort of feel the long-range, long-term impact of the sanctions, sort of a domino effect um, of the lack of certain uh, resources and components, for example. And of course, the most impactful sort of uh, lesson here is the effect on the high-tech economy in Russia, on the high-tech infrastructure, on the microelectronics, on uh, the IT industry in general, as the most visible and most discussed impact of the, of the sanctions. Obviously, we have the uh, people leaving Russia. There's uh, a brain drain. There are excellent exposés on the dependence of the Russian defense industry on imported components. But uh, the impact on other sectors of the Russian economy is uh, less visible. And we don't know yet exactly how much of an impact there will be next year. But again, what is clear right now is that Russia still has competent bureaucrats that Putin listens right. to. And the Financial Times piece actually highlighted that, especially the fact that a lot of these people, while they may have disagreed with the war, they remained on their posts because they felt that whoever would replace them would be much worse for the Russian economy and for the Russian people. And so we have this very interesting mix of nationalism, patriotism, and pragmatism mixed in with fatalism with respect to how these people see themselves and uh, sort of their sectors of the economy in the war. But it's not over yet. Again, we're heading into 2023. 
Uh, Russia is still holding on. The war is not over. Russia is digging in. Russia is mobilizing more forces. Uh, Russia hopes to use the next several weeks to several months to train the newly mobilized forces to uh, re-equip them and to sort of dig in and make any Ukrainian advance very costly. Byron, uh, let me uh, bring it back to you in terms of sort of global economic impacts. Uh, we had Angela Stent, uh, who uh, is uh, the director of Georgetown University's Eurasian, uh, Russian and East European Studies uh, Center. And, and she was talking about the cumulative impact of sanctions, that over time they are going to be hamstringing uh, uh, Russia very, very badly and much more badly than what we had seen in the earlier block of some, uh, sanctions uh, after the Crimea uh, after the 2014 invasion. From your standpoint, what is the broader sort of global economic impact and whether states are, will be able to, no pun intended, weather uh, that impact, right? Because Putin is counting on the West buckling before he does. You know, we're, we're tougher. We can throw more people into the breach. We are willing to take higher casualties, right? Many Russians don't even know the full scope and extent uh, of the losses. Uh, another great New York Times uh, story working with uh, BBC as well as independent Russian journalists to piece together how many Russian dead there are, uh, because that uh, number has not fully ever been disclosed. I mean, there are hunches of 100,000 Russian wounded and, and dead. Um, this one, you know, the, the story is trying to put greater contour on it. But the whole notion is that Russia can bear greater pressure and stress than the West. What are we learning about the West's ability to actually weather stress? Because, you know, Europe despite the fact that Europeans are paying more for energy, uh, are still imposing tough sanctions and, and still, you know, supplying arms to Ukraine and repairing Ukrainian equipment and giving as much assistance as uh, Europe can give. What, what does this tell us about sort of Western well, resilience? You know, first, that was the other uh, important shift in, in really what this war meant for the global economy in 2022. And it's going to play through into 2023 as well. Um, you know, the impact on food insecurity in places like North Africa. And that was somewhat mitigated, but, you know, there's a famine that's starting in Somalia that, you know, people may lose sight of some of this with just a focus on, on the war itself, but the, the broader ramifications, <clears throat> certainly inflation has been a more important factor in, uh, in, in global economies. And the round of interest rate increases that we saw, you know, most recently with both the Fed and European central banks last week has been a, a sea change in, in, you know, central banks trying to tamp down inflation. Um, but I don't know. I mean, I, I think we, I'm, I'm careful in assessing, you know, on one hand, the, the broader impact on <clears throat> Russia's economy from sanctions and export controls, and on the other hand, their ability to continue to generate military power. Um, <clears throat> you know, the fact that you continue to see these missile barrages <clears throat> and ammunition barrages is, look, these, these export controls are still somewhat porous, and Russia... Maybe also, you know, dusting off some old school textbooks about how do you access and import technology, um, notably, you know, microelectronics that had been <clears throat> effectively <clears throat> attempted to be put off limits. And, you know, the same, you can look at a lot of the Iranian drones and the electronic content in those. So <clears throat> it's still a global supply chain, a global system. And, you know, as much as we think these sanctions were more broadly economic warfare, it certainly imposes costs, but I don't see it in and of itself uh, bringing Russia to its knees. 
And I think the other point, you know, as much as you mentioned some of those statistics, you know, there is a factor you have to weigh here, which is Russia is is really the, the old correlation of forces, right, between their population and their GDP and what they're really stacked up against when you look at the EU and U.S. in comparison. Um, you know, Russia's GDP is about 5% of the combined economies of the U.S. and the EU. <clears throat> I could throw in Japan and some of the other countries that also have backed uh, Ukraine in this conflict, and that that uh, figure would fall even further. <clears throat> From a population standpoint, yeah, you know, 143, 144 million people. <clears throat> Ukraine has 44 million people. And, and you know, the United States has 332 million, the EU has 447. Now, no one's suggesting that the US and the EU are going to go to war with Russia over Ukraine, but I'm just saying it's not a very attractive uh, correlation of forces from an economic standpoint that, that Putin has to be looking at. And sure, he can drag this thing on for a year or two or three you know, the one thing that I worry about personally is the 2024 election. There was a Chicago Council of Foreign Affairs uh, report or poll that came out from November that showed Republicans uh, were the one cohort in the U.S. Uh, polity that wanted to eventually see a scaling back in aid to Ukraine. And if I'm in the Kremlin and I see that poll, wow. Just let's hold on until the 2024 election. And in the 2025, maybe the U.S. does go wobbly if there's a change of power in Washington, D.C. So that that concerns me um, when I see those attitudes expressed in those those sorts of polls. I mean, it's always said that the United States has allies and partners and, and the West has the same, whereas Russia uh, really doesn't. And I'm not necessarily sure that's entirely the case, although it does have um, partners of convenience, uh, whether it's North Koreans uh, providing, you know, troops or artillery shells or Iran, uh, and indeed China uh, and, and India uh, buying energy uh, from, from Russia. How have uh, Russia's partners, friends, um, uh, co-conspirators, depending on how you want to put it, rogue nations of similar stripe, um, you know, how have they come through for Russia over the course of the year that should serve as an object lesson uh, for us? And, and Byron, I've got a kind of a broader to interlace this with other broader uh, global themes, including China, uh, Japan's new strategy and the like in a, in a moment. But go ahead, Sam. Well, the biggest success in this regard, again, looking objectively at this uh, set of relationships is the Iran-Russia relationship and Russia's use of Iranian drones to uh, uh, basically hammer away at the Ukrainian civilian infrastructure. Um, Iran is a country that also um, lives under sanctions, has lived under sanctions for several decades, and has been able to field a relatively robust and diverse uh, drone fleet um, of different models and different ranges. And Russia is using some of that technology uh, with, uh, with relative uh, frequency right now. Iranian drone industry benefited from different types of uh, controls over, um, over import and export of these uh, uh, microelectronics and other key components. As discovered recently, its drones are also chock full of Western and other components. 
basically pointing to the fact that it is difficult to control a lot of these commercial flows and supply chains, especially when technology is strictly civilian or even dual use. Another interesting um, correlation here is the mass scale use of Chinese made commercial quadcopters as tactical intelligence surveillance, reconnaissance and combat drones by the many thousands. And even uh, when China officially announced that it is not selling its quadcopters in Russia and Ukraine because they don't want their drones, their Mavic drones to be the symbols of warfare, all sides are still able to, to, excuse me, to procure these drones at all kinds of uh, online and, um, and physical marketplaces. And so there's no stopping the flow of this commercial technology to the front, specifically Chinese-made DJI and hotel drones and other commercial tech. Uh, and uh, another correlation here is during sanctions, there are countries right now looking at Russia's internal marketplace as, uh, as an opportunity to gain a larger share. So with the departure of some of the global name brands, other lesser known brands or brands that were more regional, like uh, brands from China, India, Turkey, or even Iran itself, are now gaining a significant share of some of the Russian marketplaces, especially when it comes to consumer electronics and information communication technologies. So at this point in December of 2022, we have to recognize that Russia still have a lot of friends. It has a lot of um, chances and abilities to circumnavigate some of the heavier uh, sanctions. It's got allies willing to uh, trade with Russia and invest in Russia. It's got a lot of allies elsewhere outside of the sort of the larger uh, economies of China, India, and, and, and Turkey, for example, in Africa, which are still not signed on to the uh, global sanctions against Russia. And so this basically points to numerous opportunities for Russia to exploit the sanctions regime and to come up with myriads of ways to bypass the sanctions, to possibly import some of the key technologies and concepts that its economy and the military needs. Again, this is where we are as of December 2022. This picture may be different a few months from now, depending on how the war goes. Uh, right. It may be different or the same six months from now or even six weeks from now. So, at, But at this point, at this point, Russia has proven itself to be more resilient than anticipated. Indeed, it has. And again, Russia is always playing the long game. It's counting on uh, it being able to tough out uh, the situation longer uh, than uh, its uh, adversaries, as we've seen uh, time and again. Byron, I want to uh, come back to you uh, about how this conflict then plays into a number of other very important storylines. China uh, becoming more uh, assertive, at least before uh, the party Congress, coming out of the party Congress and demonstrations. Uh, Xi uh, is um, uh, trying to woo uh, the nations that uh, he has sparked concern uh, among, trying to have a little bit of a softer uh, tone uh, because I think I think even people in Beijing sense that they miscalculated. They moved a little more quickly on the Wolf Warrior diplomacy and now have organized the world uh, against it. Um, you know, we have a new Japanese uh, strategy uh, and, you know, we have North Korea still being as disruptive as ever with Chinese cover. Uh, and we have Iran uh, actually becoming uh, a, a key driver, not just in the Ukraine uh, conflict, uh, but also imperiled itself. Right. What, what's your thinking about 
how we should be thinking and what the major news stories of the year were and how to make sense of them. Uh, because I know you've been spending a lot of time thinking about that. Well, the, the Japanese uh, new defense strategy or national security strategy is really quite remarkable because they talk about getting to 2% of GDP by, 20, by their fiscal year 2027. In fiscal 2022, they're a 0.95% of GDP. So if you do the math on that, that could get that could get Japan to around a hundred billion dollar annual defense budget um, by 2027. That would put them probably in the top three or four defense spenders in the world. <clears throat> they really haven't articulated <clears throat> exactly how that all is going to be spent. You know, there are some broad outlines in the in the document that was released, at least the translation of the document that I saw last last week. You know, but that's a very significant change, and it it reflects, you know, not just Japan's concerns about China, it also reflects its concerns about Russia. And while the document talked a lot about, uh, you know, close cooperation with the United States, you know, when you see things like the U.S. pulling F-16, F-15Cs out of, of, uh, I believe that was out of Okinawa or Kadena, Bago, Let's just say I, I think I think it was from uh, Kadena. Oh, uh, Kadena. Okay, when you see, you know, the U.S. pulling F-15Cs out of Kadena, you know, maybe the Japanese are also thinking, well, wow, we really are going to have to take uh, uh, more responsibility for our own defense. That the U.S., <clears throat> from a relative standpoint, um, can't just shoulder the burden that it's been carrying. So I think that's a a, a very significant change, and you know, what's yet to be seen is how China and Russia respond to this. Because, you know, as we saw in 2022, there's a there's always a back and forth uh, in action, counter-reaction, defense, offense, whatever, however you want to characterize it. Iran, and, and to a lesser extent, China, you know, the fact that you've seen, yet again, uh, pretty significant political unrest, domestic unrest, um, the Chinese reversal on zero COVID has been fascinating to watch, um, but I suppose too is going to be <clears throat> what happens to that country after uh, the New Year celebrations. You know that that could be a mass spreading event and really could cause additional stresses in that society. So, you know, twenty twenty two is finishing on a couple of springboards that really continue to suggest <clears throat> more uncertainty in a global security environment. Um, and, and I think everybody just kind of has to continue to check and recheck their assumptions. Uh, just in terms of the U.S. Air Force uh, F-15C uh, issue, right? I mean, the pipeline has been cut. Uh, the Supporting the airplanes are harder. And the U.S. Air Force's position is that we will have a rotational structure with F-35s that will be able to compensate for the withdrawal of those airplanes, but that we will be uh, rotating them uh, around as opposed to having the airplanes more concentrated in, in a single uh, place uh, and a, a number of other assets that would roll through there. Uh, and, and one of the reasons the service obviously wants the F-15EX, which is which is just a massive bomb truck uh, and, and also um, uh, air, with air superiority capabilities. Um, let me uh, just quickly go to the other stories of the year really quickly, uh, Byron, because I know you track them from a broader uh, perspective, Sam, uh, with your patience on this. Uh, walk us through 
um, you know, the, the business environment and some of the changes we're seeing in the United States, Washington, right? We have an $858 billion defense budget, absolutely uh, massive. Uh, on uh, the other hand, you know, we've, um, uh, you know, a very positive business environment overall. Um, and we, despite uh, the administration's decision to turn down, Air, you know, Lockheed Martin's acquisition of Aerojet Rocketdyne, L3 Harris came through uh, last night uh, with the transaction to acquire the rocket engine company as part of Chris Kubasic's drive to sort of reinvent L3 Harris and turn it uh, not just into a parts maker, but a actually a first tier uh, prime, or, or at least something much bigger than what L3 Harris has been uh, historically. Kind of give us a, a sense on all of these storylines briefly as we wrap the program up in the year yeah, in review. In, in no particular order, I think the uh... The, the pace of M&A in defense was really surprisingly strong this year um, and it really cut across. There's no single theme, you know, private equity was on both sides of these transactions. There was, you know, global M&A, you know, for example, Rheinmetall buying a, a Spanish ammunition country, company. Um, so th that may have been somewhat intriguing. I think what's, what's fascinating is, you know, it's not just the Aerojet deal, excuse me, it's also the Maxar deal. And you kind of wonder, you know, at a level, okay, so why are these companies selling now? In theory, when you're looking at, you know, a pretty good defense market environment over the coming years. And I think the backstory on that is, look, these new entrants are really starting to chip away and, and make some hay. And I, I think the other critical story is the amount of capital <clears throat> that people like Andural have been able to raise in 2022. And, and, you know, I wrote this up last night. When you look at Aerojet, they're facing more competition from at least five new uh, solid propellant or engine motor startup companies. And you just kind of say, well, can they do that on their own? Sure, they can. But, you know, can they do that and also keep shareholders and investors happy who routinely clamor for higher margins, higher free cash flow and, and sales growth? And, and so I think to me, the backstory on some of this is it's a growth market and growth markets inevitably attract more competition and more entrance. And, and that's not just true from a U.S. standpoint. It's true from a global scale. The other backstory that I think is really important are the successes that Korea's um, defense industry has been able to register, notably their sales to Poland which I think are really fascinating. In, indeed, Byron, right? I mean, some very, very valid questions uh, to be asking, certainly as we go into 2023. Uh, and the administration continues to have a very, very tight sort of sense or tight interpretation, uh, even for those of us who want to preserve competition, a, a very um, narrow definition of what uh, competition construes and and what could be you know either blocked entirely or um, or subjected to consent decrees. Uh, Sam, uh, last uh, thoughts as we wrap up this uh, program for the year. I think one of the more fascinating aspects of this war, again uh, purely objectively speaking, is the impact of commercial drone technology uh, in conflict and the emergence of commercial quadcopters as one of the symbols of modern warfare especially when it comes to its being paired with artillery and long-range strikes. Uh, what's interesting about this is that both sides recognize the absolute necessity of a small tactical quadcopter drone that can provide intelligence, surveillance, reconnaissance, and combat capabilities. But so far in the conflict, by, by December 2022, it's really been uh, the Chinese-made Mavics, uh, 
that have really um, sort of uh, became the symbols of modern warfare recognized even by uh, by the Russian defense establishment as absolutely necessary and that should exist in very large numbers across all units down to the very tactical formations so that military units can have greater independence in uh, their situational awareness and their conduct of war. So it's interesting how uh, national industries are going to respond to that. There, there's evidence that Russian defense industry uh, is trying to sort of turn this around and manufacture its own quadcopters for the front so that they won't depend on Chinese imports. And that's probably going to be one of the biggest stories to watch in 2023. Guys, thanks so very much for joining us today, as you guys have uh, each week over the course of this uh, year. Uh, very much appreciated and hope you guys have very, very happy holidays, a very Merry Christmas and have a happy, healthy and prosperous 2023. Uh, and look forward to welcoming you back at the start of the new year. Thanks so very much. Thanks, Fago, and same to you and your family. Thanks, Vago, and same to you and yours.